This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Our words of integration and guidance are from Jack Nelson Palmeyer. In the life and message of Jesus, salvation means healing and restoration to the community, not the crushing defeat of enemies. Kathleen Norris writes that the Hebrew word for salvation means literally to make wide, and that such Hebrew words usually come from a military context and refer to victory over enemies or rescue from danger in this life. She also notes that salvation in the Gospels is often physical healing that people seek from Jesus, and that when Jesus says to them that their faith has saved them, it is the Greek word for made you well that is employed. Jesus' link between salvation and healing also has an etymological foundation. The root verb salvar means to heal, which is also evident in the word salve. The idea that healing is linked to restoration can also be traced etymologically. Within the tradition, holiness was classically understood as separation from that which defiles. It can also mean wholeness. For Jesus, salvation and holiness were linked to healing and wholeness, including restoration to community. A reading of scripture from Isaiah 40, 25 through 31. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host and numbers them, calling them all by name, because he is great in strength, mighty in power. Not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and be weary, and the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. Holy Gospel according to Mark chapter 1, 29 to 39. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening, at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him, 
When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring town so that I may proclaim the message there also, for this is what I came to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Something strange was happening in Leanne Walter's home. During the summer of 2014, her twins, Gavin and Garrett, then three, each broke out in a skin rash that wouldn't go away. By November, 14-year-old J.D. had stomach pains so severe he couldn't climb the stairs. He was out of school for a month, but three ultrasounds, a colonoscopy, and a CT scan revealed nothing. Daughter Kaylee, then 18, lost clumps of her long brown hair in the shower. And Leanne and her husband Dennis, both 37, lost hair, suffered rashes, dizziness, and headaches. Leanne even lost her eyelashes. We had all these puzzle pieces, but still couldn't figure out what was going on, said Leanne, herself a former medical assistant. By winter, uh, the family's health problems were getting worse, especially those of Gavin. Every time he bathed, his skin turned scaly and red, and he would recoil in pain when his mom tried to put uh, lotion on him. He also stopped growing. One day, Leanne turned on the tap, and brown water flowed out. Worried that the water was tainted, the family bottled water 40 gallons a week for cooking, bathing, and drinking. Leanne and her family were residents of Flint, Michigan. In January of 2015, so that following January after that year of all this stuff was happening to her family, the city of Flint sent out an advisory stating that the water supply, which had been switched in a cost-cutting measure from the Detroit River to the Flint River, contained high levels of trihalomethanes. Trihalomethanes. This is sort of a byproduct of a chemical used to disinfect the water. And this warning said, uh, this notice said that elderly people and those with compromised immune systems had to take extra care, uh, but the water was otherwise safe to drink. Well, Leanne was alarmed, and so she demanded that the city tested her water, and the results were disturbing. The trihalomethanes were the least of her problems. She said, I got a frantic call from a city official telling us, don't drink the water. The test indicated that the lead levels in her water were seven times the legal amount. And although her neighbors uh, also were complaining that there were issues with their water, uh, the city maintained that it was her plumbing that was the culprit. Well, Leanne immediately had her own children, of course, tested for lead, and all the kids showed lead exposure, and Gavin had full-blown lead poisoning. I had a nervous breakdown, she said, dealing with all this. And she says, but then I got to work. She requested Flint's water quality reports from the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality and discovered that the city wasn't applying the proper corrosion control methods or standards to its pipes. And in March, a follow-up test of her water showed that the lead levels were now 27 times higher than the EPA-recommended standards. So the next month, the EPA investigated 
And they concluded that Leanne's pipes could not be responsible for what was happening to her water because her pipes were plastic. <laughs> the agency found that the lead was in the city's pipes, which carried water to the communities. And so a sympathetic person from the APA got Leanne connected with a professor at Virginia Tech, an expert in lead corrosion, and they did tests in more than 250 Flint homes and found that all over the place there are problems here. And that's when it hit me, Leanne says, this isn't just happening to me, like they've been saying. This is a broader issue. But still, officials failed to grasp the magnitude of the problem. Michigan Governor Rick Snyder insisted the water leaving Flint's drinking system is safe to drink, even at this later stage in the game. But thanks in part to Leanne's outreach, the press seized on this issue, and the governor eventually did concede that the water was unsafe uh, in the order that the water supply be switched back to the original uh, Detroit River, um, and National Guard troops were brought in, a state of emergency was declared, bottled water, all, that, all the rest, uh, filters and so on, and federal aid was given uh, by President Obama to help the city begin to recover. story that, of course, we're all sadly familiar with. One's health or wellness is not simply measured by a medical analysis, right? We could all have tests, go for our physical, maybe draw some blood, take our waist, blood pressure, kind of do all that stuff, and that'll give us certain measurements, right, of our health or our wellness. But that's not the only measurement, because our health and our wellness doesn't occur in a vacuum. In the Flint story, it wasn't just one of Leanne's kids who wasn't feeling well. It was her whole family. And it wasn't just her whole family that wasn't feeling well. It was her whole neighborhood. And it wasn't just her whole neighborhood that wasn't feeling well. It was the whole city. Because our health and our wellness are connected to our social and physical environments, right? We don't live, any of us, in a vacuum. We're a part of this broader thing called society. And sometimes it's something explicit, right? Like bad water that can produce unfortunate health effects. But sometimes it's something less tangible, a way a society conducts itself that can also have impacts for the good or for the ill. So you would think that when Leanne brought to light what was happening in Flint, everyone would cheer it on. Like, hey, now we know why this is happening to so many people. There are lead and toxins in the water. Now we can treat it. Now we can get people clean water. We can fix the problem. And of course, many did cheer on her work, uh, and certainly many others, which, bring, uh, which brought possibility for healing. Healing for people like nine-year-old Nicholas Carr, who couldn't figure out why he was continually vomiting. Or 60-year-old Dolores Barnwell, who couldn't understand why rashes were breaking out all over her body. Or Carlos Young, who noted just the incredible amount of anxiety and stress that happened to a person living in this environment and realizing what you had unknowingly exposed yourself to for way too long. But not everybody cheered on uh, the revelation of what was happening there. Why not? 
Well, because she did more than make a diagnosis and solution, right, for treatment to help make people well. She exposed a deep failing of those responsible. Her efforts toward healing were an indictment on those who had some level of responsibility for making this situation possible. And she revealed, I think, not just a sickness in individuals or one family or even one town. She revealed a sickness in society. And exposing a sickness in society is not always going to win you a popularity contest. Which brings us to Jesus. In our text today, Jesus does some healings. And if Jesus was entering into a relatively healthy society, I think his efforts, his acts of healing would have been seen as interesting, nice, maybe a bit of a novelty. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. That might have been an interesting thing to share on the water cooler or at the office or the docks, as, as it may be, for the fishermen. Hey, did you hear what happened to Pete's mom? You know? Kind of what a word might have spread kind of slowly, happenstance, if it spread at all. But that's not what we read in the text. Instead, we read verse 33 says, The whole city gathered around the door. The whole city gathered around the door. And then, after Jesus does some healings, needs a little time to retreat, recharge. It says he goes off to a quiet place to pray. The disciples hunt him down and say, Everyone is searching for you. Everyone is searching for you. That kind of desperation and insatiable hunger for healing does not happen unless we're talking about a society that is profoundly unwell. Which explains, I think, why Jesus' miracles of healing and casting out demons were not universally embraced. Some viewed his work as socially deviant, heretical, unacceptable. He was acting... Some said illegally, unauthorized, outside of the proper channels. But if you were a recipient of his healing, or your community was one in which he came and brought wholeness, his work was liberating. And so it's important, I think, that we go beyond just the literal meaning of the healings themselves. Right, which they're not just a matter of giving sight to the blind or lifting a fever or even of curing leprosy. All of those things, uh, certainly powerful and incredible, could be reduced to the physical or the biomedical. But if we focus sort of obsessively on the literal level, we can make the miraculous the point. See, Jesus was the Son of God because he performed miracles. This proves something or other in my theological system. Or, conversely, we could go to another extreme and reject such a view and say, well, miracles don't really happen. And these were just incredulous peasants who kind of exaggerated. But I think we can avoid, perhaps either of those extremes by incorporating the social matrix or setting context in which these events are taking place and see that Jesus' work is more than simply physical or literal healing. It is also spiritually and emotionally healing. Jesus' healings were also about being seen, about being known in a society where many of these folks were invisible, forgotten, forgotten, 
disregarded or called unclean. Jesus didn't just make you well. He said, I see you. God sees you. You are known. You are loved. You are welcome. And so at a very deep level, I think Jesus' miracles were about inclusion. And so from that point of view, having meals, welcoming prostitutes, tax collectors, and lepers were themselves miraculous. Being included and welcomed when you have been rejected and socially ostracized is itself healing. It is also a threat to the existing social order, which makes it deeply subversive. And that's why I think events like the Flint water crisis are so troubling. It was certainly an indictment on elected officials who made some very troubling decisions and definitely have culpability, but it was also an indictment on our entire society. How could this happen? How could we live in a world where these things happen? And when it was brought to attention, why was the initial response, oh no, the water is safe to drink. Oh no, these are just your pipes. Well, maybe you don't want to drink it, but it's still safe to bathe in. Why was responsibility avoided at every level for as long as possible? Why is it going to take until 2020 before all the homes in Flint have new pipes? Because we live in a society of deep inequality. And this was one example that exposed that. A comprehensive study uh, from the World Economic Forum uh, ranked different nations in terms of uh, different developed nations in terms of where they were on equality, the quality of income, resources, access to health care, and so forth. And out of 30 nations, where do you think the U.S. ranked? 27? 29? You guys are such skeptics. Come on. We did better than that. We were 23rd. 23rd, right? We like to think of ourselves as number one, of course. And maybe if you look at overall wealth, we're pretty high up there. But this wasn't a study of overall wealth, but of how well is the wealth that's there broadly and broadly shared across the spectrum. And uh, this can be traced, uh, this reality in our country. During the 50s and 60s, CEOs of major American companies took it home about 25 to 30 times what uh, the average worker in their company would make. 25 to 30 times. Not 25% more, not 30% more, 25 or 30 times. This was in the 50s and 60s. By 1980, it was 40 times. By 1990, it was 100 times. And by 2007, I believe this is an average of major uh, corporations, uh, CEO packages had ballooned to 350 times what the average worker in the corporation that they were CEO of made. Got to pull out your calculator for that one. Right? It's almost hard to even fathom that those are real numbers 350 times 
Now, while this happened is complex, of course, uh, and has to do with a number of economic factors, market stuff, lack of regulation, so forth, but I think as a society, right, we've shown what we value by allowing society to be structured in this way. And this isn't to make anyone feel bad, because no doubt, even in this room, we're all at different places socioeconomically. But it's to show that there are consequences to how we choose to live together. And studies show that societies with higher inequality have lower health and wellness across the board, not just at the lower end, but across the board at every level, the society has less wellness when things are skewed. Fear, anxiety, depression, obesity, all are higher in societies that have less equal wealth distribution. And in the US, in an average year, one in four adults will suffer some sort of mental illness. And over their lifetimes, nearly half of all US adults will deal with some or other sort of uh, mental illness, higher than in many other developed nations. In a major study in 1996, the British Medical Journal found what they saw as a link between income inequality and, and health. And they wrote, the big idea is that what matters in determining mortality and health in a society is less the overall wealth of that society and more how evenly the wealth is distributed. The more equally wealth is distributed, the better the health of that society. And if you're interested in reading more about this, I recommend the book, The Spirit Level. Why Greater Equality Makes Societies Stronger. Uh, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett. You can peek at it after if you like. But Jesus also lived in a day when there was a great disparity between the few and the many. And Jesus, I think, was calling us back to our human nature. God made us to be caring, sharing beings, but we've created systems that help us do the opposite. And Jesus was not afraid to challenge those systems. He came to say, you can do this whole thing better. Remember that you belong to God and you belong to each other. You can welcome everyone to the table. Wealthy tax collectors, poor fishermen, marginalized women, outcast lepers, single people, married people, those who are gay or transgender, refugees, undocumented immigrants, those with mental illness, those who have been rejected everywhere else are all welcome here at my table. There's a space for everyone. And I think Jesus might have said, let's imagine what would happen if the reality, the deep egalitarianness that we experience around this table, imagine what would happen if we took that out into the world we live in. In a structure, in a society structured like ours, I think it remains deeply healing to say that all are welcome here. But it might also be a bit subversive. And following Jesus has never been anything but. Amen. Namaste. Would you pray with me? A God of welcome, God of grace, thank you that you open the door, that you set the table for each 
one of us. No matter who we are or where we've been, you welcome us with open arms. May we receive that deep welcome, even as we gather in a moment around the table. And may we be a force for welcome in our world. In Jesus' name, amen. to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Holland Area Arts Council in downtown Holland. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org. Mm-hmm.